And today our passage that we'll be hearing from can be found in Matthew 6, 5 through 18. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there are some Bibles under the seats directly in front of you. There should be a few in each row. Uh, But if you do have your Bible in front of you, we ask that you would turn. And if you are able, stand for the reading of God's word. Again, we'll be in Matthew Matthew 6, 5 through 18. And it reads like this. And when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the string corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for the Father knows that you, what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive, your, forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Morning. Happy birthday, Providence. It's our six-year anniversary today. Yeah, I'm excited about that. Um, My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it's your first time, I want to say thank you so much uh, for joining us, for being with us. Uh, like I said, this, this actually to the day marks six years since we officially launched and had our first gathering as a church. Uh, and that's really exciting for us. We were originally going to have a, a picnic. Turns out it rains every day in Houston, and that's just how it goes here now. So we're going to have to deal with that. Um, this is our second year we've had to push our, our picnic because of rain. But, um, so we, we wanted to celebrate together, though, and I just wanted to take uh, just a moment and, and say how grateful I am to God for what exists and what is at Providence. Because truly, uh, I think that I'd be remiss to say that, it was bec- that we have planted a church, whether it be myself or a team of people, that we planted a church, and that it, it was at all fruitful apart from the grace of God. Because, and the reason I say that is not just as a platitude, but because the real dream that we had from the very beginning was that we would plant a church, and we had a pretty simple vision behind it. It was that the gospel is enough, so let's center it around the gospel and kind of strip everything down and be really simple so that we would just preach the gospel, everything would be centered around that, that word, uh, and ultimately we would be, uh, we'd be simple, we'd be about Jesus, and also we would try to eliminate like every distraction to just be about the main thing. And, and that meant that we were gonna have to say no to good things in order to say yes to just being about the gospel. Like there'd be awesome opportunities that would come our way and we'd have to say, you know, we, we would do that, but it might take our, our, our energies and our resources away from really just being about preaching the gospel and bringing the gospel to bear weight. And so uh, that was a, a, 
I guess, a, a theoretical idea at one point when we were sitting down in my living room with just 10 or 12 people, and then maybe even before that, when I was sitting across, across from Brendan at Jitters Coffee talking to him about it and saying, hey, do you want to help <laughs> to do this thing? Um, and now here we stand, and what I want to say is why is it successful and fruitful? Because the gospel really is enough. Jesus really is enough, and when we are able to just move out of the way and display the worth and, and, and grace of Jesus, he's faithful to build his church. That's what the word says. It says, I'll build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. He didn't say that you know, our good church planning strategies would build his church. Uh, he didn't say if we had the right music that the church would be built. He didn't say if we made the right decisions that the church would be built, or that if we had the right gimmicks or best social media strategy, I can go on and on, right? He just said, I'm going to build my church. And he said that statement to Peter in relation to whenever he asked Peter, who do, you say, who do people say that I am? And Jesus' response was, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. He said, on this rock, I will build my church. And uh, a lot of people think that, you know, mistakenly maybe that, uh, hey, that, he's talking about Peter because Peter's name is Cephas, which sounds kind of like stone. So he's going to build the, you know, the church on, on Peter. No, he said, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. What's the rock? What's the stone? The foundation of the gospel. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And that if we are about the business of displaying that truth to the world, that he'll build the church uh, and the gates of hell won't prevail. So I just want to say happy birthday. And I'm glad that you're a part of that. And you're glad that we get to be a part of that together. And if you've ever wondered why we do some of the things that we do at Providence, a lot of it is making sure that, that we never do anything where one man gets all the credit or even most of the credit. So that's why we have a teaching team. It's why we have a plurality of elders. Uh, it's why we do everything together. It's why we're about community and home groups more than we're about a show. There's many decisions that we make in order to, hopefully, by God's grace, point to Jesus. Say, ultimately, it's about him. And, and we've been leveraging it that way for a long time. And hope you've got that, that flavor, that feel, and that it's been refreshing to your soul because that's what we were after. So, love you. Happy birthday. Let's get into the Bible, okay? Matthew chapter number six. We're talking about prayer and fasting this morning. So, um, we've been walking through a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we're in chapter number six. Uh, and as Ty already mentioned, uh, we've been kind of uh, going line by line, verse by verse here, and discussing Jesus' uh, words, the red letters of Matthew chapter five through seven, his longest sermon ever preached, and kind of uh, breaking down what, what is it that Jesus is after here. And what we said at the very beginning was that Jesus, uh, this is kind of his kingdom manifesto. As Jesus enters into the world, he says, this is what it will look like to be citizens of my kingdom. And so we find ourselves in, a, in, in one of the more popular portions of scripture, the Lord's Prayer. And if you have ever, uh, have you, you guys are all familiar with the Lord's Prayer? If you're an athlete, right, you probably have, you know, on one knee with your football team, probably said the Lord's Prayer uh, before games. Or maybe uh, you've said the Lord's Prayer at your dinner table. Uh, Lord's Prayer is a very familiar portion of scripture. But the reason that we put it in context is we tried to put what's around the Lord's Prayer. What's Jesus' whole thought around the Lord's Prayer and what is he getting at. So here's what I want to do. We're going to talk about prayer, and, and here's what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about why we should pray. He's talking about how we should pray. There's an assumption that's made here. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. We'll talk just briefly about why prayer is important, then talk about what is Jesus saying with how. But what I want to do is, is ask the Lord. This is what I think could happen in a sermon like this. When you talk about prayer and fasting, it typically, for me, has been an area of condemnation. I never pray enough is how I feel. Or fasting, I think for many of us, might just be unfamiliar territory. Like unless you're just doing intermittent fasting because you're trying to be buff or something, you know. But like genuine fasting uh, for spiritual reasons can be very unfamiliar for our culture. And so when we talk about these two things, it's very easy to do one of two things. Check out, like all right, this is for me. Or just kind of feel this general sense of foreboding. Like, oh man, we're going to talk about prayer. 
I don't really pray that much, except at the dinner table. And when I'm really hungry, I don't even do that. So this is gonna feel tough for me. And what I wanna do is ask God to, to help us not to feel the condemnation, to be led into, if necessary, the conviction that leads to repentance in life, but that he would inv- we'd hear the invitation here from Jesus of what prayer really is. And that what that would do is actually stir our affections, not kind of press us away. So can we do that? Let me pray for us. Feel by your heads. Pray with me. Uh, I want to ask God to help us. Father, um, we confess to you that there's not one of us here that is prayerful enough to wear a badge of honor. Um, We confess to you, Lord, that at times, even in our prayers, we fall into the, the same snares as the Pharisees whether it be heaping up empty phrases, looking for publicity. And, and so, Lord, we just ask you now as we go to your word, would you keep the enemy at a distance to not bring condemnation on our hearts? Holy Spirit, we invite you to bring conviction that can lead to life, but we don't need the condemnation that comes oftentimes with our failures and sin. Help remind us of the gospel this morning, Jesus, so that we can have freedom in life and help us to hear this text not as only an indictment on what we aren't, but an invitation into what could be. Lord, we need that. We ask for it. We believe for it. And we plead with you in Jesus' good name. Amen. Okay, so real quick before we jump in, what does Jesus say here that leads us to believe that he's assuming Uh, a few things about us as Christians. Okay, let's start with uh, chapter number six, and we'll start in verse number five, and then I'm also gonna read verse number seven, and then I'm also gonna read verse number 16. So I'm gonna kind of take three different verses. Verse five says, and when you pray. So the assumption is that we will be praying, right? Like Jesus didn't say if. Later on, he's gonna talk about when the storms come, when he uses the two houses that are built on the rock and the sand. He doesn't say if the storms come, like some of us could have a, a really like you know, sun-kissed life that just never has any problems. He says, no, when the storms come, this is gonna matter. Well, Jesus here is saying when you pray, in other words, as believers, we ought to be about the business of praying. Or as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, he says, there's never a higher or more noble office for the Christian than when he is on his knees in prayer that it's in that moment of communion with God that we are at our highest that we could ever be. It's not the levels of achievement in preaching. It's not the levels of achievement in gifting. It's not the levels of achievement in seeing people come to know Jesus, but it's really in communion with God that we are how we were meant to be. And like we talked about, I think it was a few uh, months ago, Coram Deo, living in the face of God, fully without shame because of what Christ has done. That's what prayer is. Okay, so he says, when you pray, verse five. How about verse seven? And when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases. Once again, when you pray. Okay, how about verse 16? And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. So he's also assuming that we'll be fasting, which is kind of interesting, right? I know some of you guys are like, don't take away my food. I like church until you did that, okay? Um, He's assuming there's going to be, in our spiritual disciplines, this idea of of fasting. So I need to say, before I hop in, He's assuming that we all agree, and I know not all of us are going to agree, and I'm okay with that, but all of us agree that we ought to be about the business of praying because it's what God's called us to do, and it's not just a command, but it's an invitation into delight. 
That's the assumption of Jesus' words here, because why does it matter if he teaches you how to pray if we don't even think it's important or really desire to do it, right? It's kind of like trying to teach your child how to play a sport that they really don't want to play, and they really don't see any benefit of playing it, and I could see by some of the guy's faces, they're like, yes, and it breaks my heart, right? (laughs) Why doesn't he love what I love? Okay, so Jesus is assuming that we're going to be about the business of praying. So I had a couple of simple definitions for prayer and for fasting. Uh, these are reductionist because I think there's, a, there's fuller definitions, but this might be helpful, especially in relation to what we're about to talk about. Prayer is about experiencing the benefits of our relationship with God, or what already is. Let me read that again. Prayer is about experiencing the benefits of our relationship with God, what already has been bought by the blood of Jesus. Now, there's a lot of different kinds of, 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 of prayer that we can engage with, right? Uh, if you have been using your CBR, you have uh, at least four of those in your uh, community Bible reading plan that we use in some of our discipleship groups. So there's prayers of adoration where we just love God and express to him what the word of God says about him. We adore God in prayer. Or there's prayers of confession to God where we bring our sins to him and say, this is where I am broken, God. Would you forgive me and cleanse me? Prayers of confession. This happened with the high priest in the Old Testament, but now that we have a faithful high priest named Jesus, he gave us the title of priest, and therefore now we can come boldly before the throne room of God and confess our sins. Or we give thanks to God. So prayers of thanksgiving. You know, those don't only happen in November. That actually could happen all the time. We don't have to wait, you know, until we're all sitting around, and you have to awkwardly write on a note card with your grandmammy about what you're most thankful about. Like prayers of thanksgiving is, is a part of what it means to be a believer. And then lastly, and I think this is where we lend most of the time, and I don't think this is bad, prayers of petition, where we ask God for things. And, and here's the thing. The Bible is repute full of constant encouragement for us to ask God for stuff. Like all the time God's calling us, hey, why don't you ask me for that? Why don't you come to me? Why don't you petition me? Why don't you ask that I would do that? Uh, Later on in Matthew, Jesus is going to say, ask and you shall receive. Or the book of James says you don't receive because you don't ask. So there's this constant call from God that we would be petitioning him for things and asking God for what we don't have. Okay, so if prayer is about experiencing those benefits of what Jesus has done for us, Fasting is about experiencing the pangs of longing that exist in our relationship with God. So fasting is about acknowledging that although a lot of things are true about us on this side of eternity because of Jesus, there's still a lot of broken things in this world. And so fasting gives us a reminder that we're not yet in the kingdom. It gives us this hunger of like, hey, even though we get to experience a lot of the benefits, we've still got a long way to go. Like we're headed somewhere, Right? Like, yes, the penalty of sin is no longer on us. Yes, the power of sin, we know we have the power over it, and yet we're kind of in a fight. But the presence of sin is still very prevalent. You know, if you don't really see that, I would just encourage you to turn on the news. You know, any one of them, really. (laughs) Um, You get on Facebook, you see all kinds of things. You're like, yeah, we live in a broken world. I kid you not, social media is a great way uh, to convince people that we live in a broken world. Because people you used to like, you don't even like anymore when you follow them on social media right? You love them in person, and then they got behind a keyboard, you know? And so fasting is this idea of I'm going to withhold something that feels satisfying so that I will physically feel the hunger, the pangs that I know are very spiritually real. Okay, so we deny our flesh in order to fully pursue God through repentance, and prayer and fasting are connected. Now, I only give those quick definitions because I want us to understand what we're talking about and why Jesus is going to give us the how-tos on prayer. Because the thrust of this passage is about how, and it's an encouragement to do so. So, point number one, Jesus says this about how we ought to pray. Do not pray 
or fast in order that you might be seen and heard by other people. That's the first thing he said. I'll just read it briefly to you. Verse five, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. That's pretty intense because the hypocrites are listening. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Fast forward to verse 16. This is the exact same mirror text with fasting. And when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus says this, there's a blessing and power to our secret life with God that God delights in hearing and knowing us without anyone around. And, and, and you don't really have to take a leap here. Um, if you're married or if you're in a relationship at all, doesn't your spouse also enjoy that? Like, hear me on this. It's not that your spouse doesn't enjoy being out in public and you publicly declaring your love for her or him. I think they probably enjoy that too. But if it's only public and then when you get in private, it just becomes, you know, roommate situation, that's tough, Right? and the love's kind of lost. How long do you think, guys or gals, that would last before you would have to have a tough conversation about why are we different in public than we are in private? It's not, it's not hard to take this leap with Jesus. In what he's saying is the Pharisees lived this public life, this public persona of nearness to God, but privately their hearts were far from God and they weren't really interested in engaging with him. And so what happened is they began to carve out really eloquent prayers so that people would think, wow, and be wowed by them and not God. And so to go back to what we talked about in planting providence, why do we do and make certain decisions that we make? It's because we ultimately don't want people to be wowed by man because man will fail you, but to be wowed by the glory of Jesus. Well, then it's important that we consider how we pray, how we fast. Like the Pharisees would fast, and you guys have been around people like this. It's when they make willful decisions, and then they want you to feel sorry for them about their willful decisions. Anybody? They would fast, and then they'd show up with a gloomy face, haven't bathed. And you know what the question they're begging? What's wrong? That's what they want you to say. So that you'll go, oh, nothing. Just my love for God has led me to fast. Or the false humility, right? They're like, oh, nothing. Nothing's wrong. It's like, clearly something's wrong. You look like the walking dead. Tell me what's wrong. You know? Like, well, you know, just, they've just been fasting and praying. You know, and, and then they always have some elaborate, detailed thing that's like even more holy than like normal. So it's not like I'm fasting and praying for, you know, I don't know, some situation in my life that I want to see change. Like I'm fasting and praying just because God said, just to be near, you know, whatever it may be. This is what the Pharisees were doing. And they wanted people to know that in their prayer life that said they would get on the street corners, they'd be in the synagogues, and they would look really nice, they'd look pretty prim and proper, and ultimately they would sound very holy. And Jesus steps up, and he's got a, a mixture of crowds, uh, full of people, whether it be tax collectors, sinners, all these people who were not well learned, could not have big empty phrases full of uh, elaborate uh, words. And he says, don't pray like that. Don't pray like that because you can't fool a God who knows your heart. Because when you pray these empty phrases, when you pray these elaborate prayers, ultimately God knows it's about you and not him and it, it's detestable. Jesus is saying this from a place of knowing because Jesus is God. So he's saying with authority, I detest this kind of prayer. I don't want that. 
And here's why. Because Jesus is after the heart. He knows the heart. Therefore, he wants to hear your heart. He wants to hear what's actually going on. And I just want to say, to be transparent, as you walk in the Christian life, sometimes what happens, and this happens to me, is I get into a rhythm of praying certain things. And those certain things begin to become habit. And in the end, I can do them mindlessly. If you're unfamiliar with this, again, bring it back to your relationship with your spouse or, if, or your relationship with others. How easy is it just to become familiar with saying, I love you? Familiar with saying, you look beautiful tonight, guys. And you know that you, you know, deep down, maybe you do feel that she, uh, she feels beautiful tonight, but it becomes so easy for you to say it because you're also like, if I don't say this, it's gonna be bad, so I'm just gonna, I've learned to say this. It doesn't really matter what she looks like. I don't care if she has a Halloween costume on. It's like, you look great, you look gorgeous, let's go. Let's do this. We want to be with no one but you. Let's go. You know? In your prayer life, it can become repetitious like this. Jesus is saying, if we're not careful, there's a way to engage and commune with God that ultimately is about approval of man, and it ultimately becomes about you and not really about communion with a God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on Sermon on the Mount, says, this is Jesus saying sin is so sinful that it follows you even into the very presence of God. That sin is so dark and so sinister that it has a way of clinging to you even when you're going into the holiest of holies. When we come before the presence of God, we even have to check our motivations at the door when we head there. And it's funny because, you know, God's not really in the secret business. Like in another time, uh, God says, uh, if you have secrets, they're going to be shattered on the mountaintops. Like he's just not interested in that kind of secret stuff. But the only time you see that God is interested in secrecy is when he's talking about the intimacy with him and his children. He's like, I'm in secret. I want you to come in secret. And I want to have a relationship with you that's just about that. And it's not about everything else. That's the only time we see that God's like, yeah, inviting you into this kind of secrecy. And here's the thing. We live in a culture that just is not about that, right? Like, we just can't keep anything secret anymore. Social media plays into that. It's like, if you don't check into the gym, didn't happen, you know? You know what I mean? It's like, you have to let everybody know where you're at, what you're doing, brushing my teeth now, you know? It's like, oh, like that status. Whatever it is, you just gotta let people know this is, this is what's happening in my life. And so this is super counterintuitive, I think, with our culture even, to have anything that's secret, to have anything that's precious, to have anything that's held closer to the vest than other things. Now, I want to make a caveat here. Since we live lives that include other people, uh, there's going to be an element of secrecy that we can't obtain, and I don't think Jesus is encouraging it. Um, I don't think he's saying that everything about your relationship with God needs to be secret. We know this because, like Corey said a couple weeks ago, Scripture interprets Scripture, and Jesus says later on in the Bible that he doesn't want us to be ashamed of him, that if we are ashamed of him openly, that he'll be ashamed of us one day when we stand before God, right? So he wants our, our relationship with God to be public. Like, baptism is a part of that. That public proclamation of, like, I trust Jesus. Uh, And so I want to say to you, if you're a father or a mother, like, setting an example for your children in prayer is a good thing. I don't think you need to be like, you know, I don't pray in front of my kids. I follow the Bible. No, I think it's okay. I think it's important. Uh, You you ought to model that. Um, If you want to lead and influence people you're discipling in your home groups, like, yeah, we don't pray in our home group. Just, uh, yeah, we keep it in secret. I don't think that's actually what Jesus is getting at here. Uh, I think in order for us to be held accountable to others, some things have to, that that are kind of private. We need to have a select few people that we actually let let them into our lives. But I will make this thought. Only you and God know the heart behind your prayer. So like I'm not discerning enough to tell whether or not your prayers are genuine or not. I'm just not. 
Now, I know that I oftentimes, unless God gifts me, and he has in unique moments in my life with discernment, but for the most part, I'm oblivious. I'll just trust you. You pray, I'm like, man, that was awesome. You could not even believe. Um, but God knows. God knows. And he knows our heart behind our fasting. He knows our heart behind our righteousness. And so the, the, the call from Christ here is make it about you and your relationship with God, nothing else. And check your motivations regularly. Like, don't just believe that the default motivations of your heart are good ones. I promise you they're not. You very easily will find yourself falling into the pride of self-righteousness. So check that. Bend away from that. Flee from that is what Jesus is saying. When I um, first got into ministry, and I shared this with our staff and elders uh, yesterday morning, I was told a little uh, mantra that I needed to learn in order to make it in ministry. And some of you may have heard it, but it was, you know, fake it till you make it. If you don't learn to fake it till you make it, you'll never learn how to do ministry. Um, which ultimately what they were saying was, you need to pretend that everything's okay in front of people. Uh, don't talk about your difficulty, especially as a pastor. Just fake it until you make it. Just smile. You know, every, you know how are you doing this morning? Uh, blessed and highly favored, that kind of thing. Right? Um, I just want to say to you, that's not what Jesus is saying here when he says that we should keep our prayer lives in secret. Because if you're not careful, you'll turn that and you'll say, so I, I, I need to have a secret life with Jesus and then everybody else needs to see my perfection. That's not what he's saying. There's an element of vulnerability I think is necessary in the body of Christ, that we ought to be honest, we ought to be real. He's also not saying on the flip side that it's okay to have this sort of false humility where we, like the Pharisees, whine until we shine, right? You know that person, like the Eeyore that just comes in the home group, like, mm, you know, until someone asks, what's going on? They're like, well, now that you asked. You're like, oh, man, it's going to be hijacked again, you know, and now we're all praying for you. We're all like, oh, man, it's really tough, you know, your dog Spot died. We're praying for Spot. You know, got other people that are just really struggling in the group, but it's always Eeyore's problem, right? And I think Jesus is after that. He's saying, your struggles or your righteousness and be, being that kind of like, oh, I'm going to whine and make attention come my way is really that you are so glory hungry that you can't walk into a room and make it about Jesus and others before you make it about yourself. So there is a balance here. We don't fake it so that no one knows us, but we don't act so vulnerable so that it's all about us. Does this make sense? Few few thoughts on maybe how do you walk that fine line? Well, let's be honest people. We tell the truth. Let's be vulnerable people. We embrace our weakness. But also, let's be wise people. We know who we're not really supposed to be sharing everything about our lives with. So, like, if you just share your whole business with everyone, I want to encourage you. The Bible actually says that's not wise. Like, I live as an open book. You should live as an open book. With certain people, the book opens more. Like, if you're like, I'm on Facebook, all my sins. Just, there's no wisdom there. Just letting you know. And, and that happens. I know it's like, it's funny. Like, I, I, I laugh about it too to keep from crying. Sometimes I see it's like, that should not be posted. It's like, it's a, you know, a diatribe of like, it's a full on memoir. And I'm like, that's just, there's no wisdom there. And then lastly, humble. We don't trust our own motivations. So part of being humble is acknowledging that, you know what, I don't even know if my motivations are in the right spot. So how do you test them? You test them in prayer, alone with God, and you test them in community. You have people that are willing to ask you the tough questions, like, hey, man, you really like doing that for the right reason, or you kind of like jaded about like trying to get attention. We need that. We need people that, so you can go, I don't even know, maybe so. <laughs> maybe I do want attention more than I thought. And then we can get down to the root of the sin. Okay, 
Number two, what else does Jesus say here? Then he goes on to say, do not heap up empty phrases. Verse seven, when you pray, don't, empty, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they're gonna be heard with their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father in heaven knows what you want before you ask. There is a blessing and humility that is exhibited in our simplicity when we're just simple before God. When we make our prayer life complicated and nuanced, it's often because our hearts have been lifted up in pride. This can happen as your theological knowledge increases, your prayer life becomes more pompous. You start fact-checking your own prayer life and the prayer lives of others rather than getting down to the heart of simplicity. Are we coming to our Father with our love, care, and needs and praying to him? See, what happens is we start to think too much of ourselves. And I don't mean too much of ourselves in that we think of ourselves highly. I just think we think too often. The amount of time we're thinking about ourselves is increased. And so what happens is this childlike faith that Jesus is encouraging us into just falls by the wayside. And we become professional Christians. Jesus does not want us to be professional Christians. He doesn't want us to come in neatly ready to approach the throne room of grace. And here's why. There's nothing about us that could make us ready for the presence of God other than the gospel. Nothing. That's why Hebrews says, you know, our God is a consuming fire. Like, we don't go in there with our, like, our morning cup of joe, you know? Like, to go into the presence of God, there should be trembling, there should be fear, but also because of the gospel, there should be eager expectation that we have a God who's the king. We love him, and he loves us because of what we know Jesus has done for us. We can come boldly and confidently and bring our hurts, and we can bring our fears, and we can bring our anxieties, but we can also bring our needs. And Jesus says that gets lost when we become professionalized in our prayer life. And he goes on to say, God already knows what you need before you ask. Now, he uses that as a reason why we should be simple in our prayers. I want to make mention of this. What does knowing that God already knows what you need before you ask him do for your prayer life? Here's what I hope it doesn't do. I hope you don't say, then why do I pray? Because I could see that, right, being a logical conclusion. He already knows. He's a good dad. No need for me to go. Uh, The only problem with that is the Bible, which constantly and regularly brings us to this, hey, come to me and ask, come to me. You need to come near to me and petition. Be like the persistent widow who just nags and nags and nags. Be knocking on the door like that. That's what God says. So we can't just say, well, he already knows, he already knows my needs. You know, God's gonna sovereignly handle it. Okay, this is why Jesus says this, because God knowing your needs should eliminate your need to feel like you gotta twist God's arm. He already knows your needs. You don't have to come in there and try to, you know, manipulate him. You ever had that moment? My, your kids do it. My son does it. Like, he, he thinks I don't already delight in wanting to give him something. So he tries to manipulate. Jonas's manipulation is he bats his eyes at me. Like, you know, he just hugs my leg. You know, that's how he does it because he knows he's cute, all right? And so he, he, he tries to, you know, get me to give him what, and it's usually food because he's a foodie. Like, I don't already want to give him food. You know, I want to give you food, but now you're ruining it, all right? And now, you're think, now I'm starting to think this is unhealthy. We don't have to try to deceive God with our righteousness or perform or barter with him. Like, we don't have to say, God, if you'll give me this, then I'll do this. How many of us, we do that? If I read my, I'm going to read my Bible or I'm going to pray more, so God, please answer my prayers. Then I'll be acceptable to you. 
God, I'm going to change this about myself. I'm going to change the way I treat my husband. I'm going to change the way I treat my wife. I'm going to change the way I interact with my kids so that you might hear my prayers. That's totally unnecessary when you have a father who knows your needs and you have the gospel which says that Jesus has already performed everything that needed to be performed for your acceptance in the sight of your father. And so Jesus is saying, don't approach me like that. Like he wants us to come boldly and ask. And so using the example of Jonas, it, it, it's as though Jonas coming up to me and really just there's a drink or food that's out of his reach. And he comes to me and asks me, Dad, will you get me that? Number one, I already want to give it to him. He's my son and I love him. Number two, the only reason he's asking me is because he's completely incapable of getting it himself. And hear me on this, friends. It doesn't matter how righteous you are. There are things that will always be this way that you are totally incapable of giving yourself. You can't. God knows this and has designed the world this way so that there's delight in the relationship. He knows he can trust me when I grab the cup and hand it to him and the relationship increases. Okay, then Jesus moves on to the Lord's Prayer. Famous prayer, right? Let's read it out together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And every athlete goes, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen, right? What is Jesus doing? He's teaching his disciples to pray. Ty and I were having a conversation about this uh, last week. We were, we were out of town and, and we're talking about this text and he said, you know, it's interesting that Jesus, we know Jesus is teaching us how to pray here and not just giving us a model of his own prayers because Jesus asked for forgiveness and he doesn't need forgiveness. Which kind of, it brings some, uh, some context here, doesn't it? Like Jesus is actually saying this is how we should pray. Now what do we know? We know that Jesus isn't saying that this is what we should repeat all the time only. Like it's a model for prayer, not one that we should just always constantly recite only. I'm not saying it's bad to recite it. In fact, I think it's great to memorize and there's so much, there's nothing wrong with praying the word of God ever. But I think that this is a model that should bring us to our own hearts. So very quickly for the sake of time, I wanna walk through what is each line actually lending itself to to teach us to pray. Okay, first he says we should pray our Father. Now that's unique, right? because he could have used any other title. God is a creator, God is a sustainer, God is a mighty God, right? A consuming fire, a powerful, righteous judge. And Jesus says, when you come to God, say our Father. Embracing the implications of adoption in our prayer life is important, why? Because it starts off on the footing of God is near to us like a dad. His eminence is near. Hallowed be your name. So hallowed be your name, in other words, means set apart, holy, majestic, altogether different is your name than every other name. What does that do in our prayer life? It sets aside God as different than human beings. If you and I, all our lives, consistently only compare ourselves to the schlubs that we're around, we will always feel good about ourselves. You can find a schlub that you're better than, right? That's one of the great uses of social media, and by great, I mean awful, is you just follow people that make you feel better about your life, and then some of you are really discouraged because you decided to follow a bunch of other people that make you feel bad about your life. But what 
this does in prayer is it compares every human being to a holy, majestic God who is awesome and perfect in every way. And therefore, when we're in his presence, we simultaneously feel his otherness and his eminence or nearness. So he's totally different than us, holy and righteous, has no reason to engage with you and me, and yet he's near to us like a dad. And it's on that footing that we move forward in every prayer. That a God like that would come down and condescend. That's the heart of the gospel, right? That he would wrap himself in flesh, come and be among us. That's how we start our prayers. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Coming into union with God in his will for our lives. Rather than coming into prayer asking God to join into our will. So he says, your kingdom, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says we ought to be about the business of trying to take our will completely out of prayer and aligning ourselves with the will of God. Now, here's the thing. Does that mean that you could never pray for something that you're just unsure or you believe that, hey, this is something that I desire and that God desires and therefore I want to, no, of course not. Pray for that. Be okay with God saying no in case that is not what he's after in your life. See, sometimes we think, God, you know, prayer doesn't work because God never answers. No, he answers. You just don't like no's. You're like every other kid. You don't like the answers he gives. So what Jesus is saying here is that we ought to bring ourselves into, and we can't bring ourselves, so we need the Spirit's help, to bring us into union with the will of God and the kingdom advancing on earth as it is in heaven. And so our prayers begin to be shaped by that. Or as James says, sometimes we ask and we do not receive because we ask according to our adulterous desires versus asking according to how God would have us ask. So we ask for things we ought not need. You guys have kids, right? Do you not know what this looks like? Christmas time, you're like, do a list. There's like seven things on the list. You're like, that is illegal. I can't buy you that. It's like, you don't need that. You shouldn't want that. This is like you and I. And many times we are petulant children. We don't, we don't know why God won't just give us the very thing that could destroy us. He's a good dad, that's why. Which is why Jesus says we ought to bring ourselves into submission to his will. So we start praying the things that God wants for us too. Give us this day our daily bread. He's hearkening back to the children of Israel in the wilderness with manna. Daily they were given manna, but they couldn't grab for two days. If they grabbed enough bread for two days, the second day would rot. God wanted them to consistently trust that day by day he was their provider. And so here Jesus says, be thankful that God is going to provide and set your mind at the beginning of your day in prayer on the fact that no matter what happens, our God is a provider who cares for me. And day by day he will give me my needs. Forgive us as we forgive. Forgive us of our debts as we forgive the debts of others. So here we have the gospel at its essence, right? We are about the business of forgiving in our prayers and about asking for forgiveness. And as we receive grace, we're extending mercy like a funnel of God's grace. And Jesus puts this in prayer because he knows that oftentimes that can be a huge blockade in our heart where we want the mercy of God, but we want justice against how we've been treated, right? And so it's hard for us to forgive others. We just accept the forgiveness of Jesus all day long. We hate the idea of having to forgive others. And there's just a big blockage in our heart. Jesus says they have to be daily flowing through. God, forgive me of my sin. Help me to not hold bitterness against others. Help me to not hold bitterness against others. Help me to apply the gospel to others in the same way that I want to apply it to my own heart. And then lastly, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So here, Jesus says, in our prayer lives, we need to be asking for the leading and guidance of God, acknowledging our tendencies towards sin, 
and acknowledging that there's a battle waging war against our souls. C.H. Spurgeon said this, I would rather teach one man to pray than 10 men to preach. Why would he say that? He's the prince of preachers. That's what they called him, prince of preachers. Friends, because Jesus, if you think about it, he's training his disciples now to go and carry the great commission to the ends of the earth. He didn't teach them to preach once. He never even mentions it. Mentions it. Prayer is so essential to the Christian life that Jesus spends this amount of time talking about it. Because if the word of God is like food to us, prayer is like breathing. We won't live without it. Okay, so why are those things important though? Why those particular things in prayer? We need to know daily that God is with us. That's why we need to pray to him as a father. We need to know that God's able to meet our every need, which is why we need to know about the hallowedness of the name of God, that he's different than us. We need to be reminded of God's perfect plan and purposes for our lives so that we don't try to go our own way and build our own kingdoms. We need to know that he will provide for us and be grateful that he has yet to let us down. You know what I know about you without knowing you is that you have been fed every day of your life at least enough to be sitting here right now breathing. He's done a good job with you. Some of us have been fed more than others, okay, but we're all here. We need to extend and experience the forgiveness bought by Jesus' blood every day so that the gospel becomes regular in our hearts, that we are both receiving Jesus' forgiveness and forgiving others. And lastly, we need to come face-to-face with our own tendencies. Check this out. Listen to me. With Satan's hatefulness for you and God's loving and guiding hand in your life. These need to be regular rhythms of our prayers. Because if not, we are left to experience life in such a way that God never intended it. Because if I had time, I would go through there and say, what's the opposite? The opposite's, it's tough to live that way. I'll close the way Jesus closes here with one thing. You ever notice, like, I added what we added in sports to the end of the Lord's Prayer. Do you know what Jesus adds to the end of the Lord's Prayer? He actually circles back around and he says this, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Why does Jesus circle back around and restate the forgiveness portion? Here's why. At the heart of what Jesus has been doing in the Sermon on the Mount so far is he's been juxtaposing our own self-righteousness and the righteousness of God. And he's been trying to show us, you're not righteous. And even when you think you're righteous, you've actually just indicted yourself as not righteous. So he's constantly coming back to this idea of don't rely on your own righteousness, don't rely on your own righteousness, stop trying to project yourself as righteous. Why would Jesus do that? Because he wants us to know why he's going to the cross and that it's necessary, not just a good deed. That Jesus going to the cross was not just a good sacrifice for most of mankind. It was the only way for us to experience communion with the Father for all of mankind. And so he's going hard against our righteousness so that you and I would live the rest of our lives according to the imputed righteousness of Jesus. That's big words. Let's break it down simply. God's righteousness resides in Jesus perfectly. And at the cross, he gives us over his righteousness and he takes upon himself the sins of everyone who would believe. Dies on the cross and we now walk according to the righteousness that's been given to us, not that we've earned, but that's been credited to us because of faith.
So at the heart of the gospel is a sinful people that need to be forgiven, and God offers that. And so when Jesus is talking here about the prayers, he wants us to know as we, and this is what I hope that you know as you leave out of here this morning. If you're feeling condemnation about your prayer life, what you pray, how you pray, listen to me, friends. It might be that you rely on your righteousness a little too much. I'm not trying to take away the conviction. I'm not trying to blunt the sword. There's, some, there's part of us that need to feel like, oh, man, I can be a Pharisee. Because you probably can. So can I. But if we start feeling like we're spiraling downward toward, this is not for me, it's too many, it's probably because you rely too heavily on what you're able to do and not enough on what Jesus has done. And so we need to just come back here to say, I need Jesus' righteousness because what it does is it opens the heart. You can be way more forgiving when you know you've been forgiven much. And a sermon like this reminds us where we fall short, but also what I hope it does is it produces a fresh gratitude for what Christ has provided. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Father, I don't want to do the very thing that you've told us not to do. I, I admit to you and confess to you in front of my friends, there's an element of trembling that comes with praying publicly after preaching a sermon like that. There's a part of me that just feels like everything will be flowery language to perform. And so instead, Lord, what I ask very simply is for a fresh reminder of your mercy and grace. And that each one of us would feel the loving embrace of a father who forgives us and welcomes us in. And Lord, as we take communion, would you do that for us? And for those who might not yet have submitted to your matchless mercy this morning, I pray that they would hear this as an invitation into life. May they know this morning they're loved by you and that, Lord, you are calling them to yourself. As we sing and as we worship, may our words of our mouth combine and unite with our hearts. And may it be a sweet sound to your ears, God. In Jesus' name.